five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. On this episode, we will talk about a company that can take you to the edge of space. My guests are Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum, co-founders of The Space Perspective which plans to take space tourists up in stratospheric balloons from approximately 2024 onwards. We talk about what that very special balloon ride would look like, the special capsule they are building for it, and other topics such as the 20 mile high club. Well, on that note, please enjoy my conversation with Jane and Tabor. Hey, space enthusiasts, welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast. I'm joined today by Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum from The Space Perspective. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello, hello. You guys are joining us from uh, Kennedy Space Center, I think, right? That's exactly right. Our operations center, which is right at the midline of where the shuttle used to land on the, what's called the shuttle landing facility, which is where we will be launching from soon. And while I think most of us, our background noise is basically traffic passing outside, you guys, the background noise is basically like occasionally launching rockets. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, well, it's uh, the general background noise is that Kennedy is on a wildlife reserve. So you get all kinds of amazing wildlife. And then a rocket launches and all the wildlife goes crazy, flies away, and the rockets uh, shower, rock all the windows. So it's great. <laughs> God, you fig you'd figure they'd be used to it by now. It's only going to get worse. Now there's like one Starlink launch a week. <laughs> but anyway. It, I don't think it ever gets old. I think both <laughs> parts of the experience here will never get old. It never gets old that I walk out the door of our operations center and there is so much life on this reserve that frogs fall on my head. And that's awesome, by the way. I love it. And that I can then run upstairs onto the balcony of this uh, building that we're in and watch a launch. I mean, it never gets old. There you go. It never gets old for humans and apparently it never gets old for the wildlife either. And Kennedy Space Center is only going to get busier, not only because of SpaceX, but also because of the Space Perspective, guys. What is the Space Perspective? Elevator pitch. <laughs> right. So... You know, for when Tabor and I were in the biosphere, we had this extraordinary experience of really viscerally being part of our biosphere and, you know, knowing where our oxygen was coming from, where our CO2 was going to. And 
you know, where the, the boundaries of our biosphere were. And it turns out that that's an incredibly analogous experience to what astronauts have when they go to space. You know, the overview effect, as some, as some people call it, that very moving experience of seeing Earth in space. And so we have wanted to be able to give that to as many people as possible. And so one way uh, to do that is to make it physically very accessible. And so Space Perspective was founded with our first vehicle being a space balloon vehicle that is incredibly gentle. We go to space at a blazing 12 miles an hour. So it, it's really almost the opposite of, of rocket flight, right? It's There is no vibe. There is no G-forces. Uh, you know, it's 1G. Uh, so you can there's a there's going to be a uh, you know a bar of some sort on board. Of course, uh, every self-respecting spaceship needs a needs a bar, and of course a loo, and there'll be Wi-Fi on there. So it's like a really different way of thinking about going to space, so that we can really make this accessible for as many people. And our first product is a suborbital flight which is going to be about six hours long, uh, launching right from here at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it takes about two hours to get to the edge of space, and then you're about two hours at the edge of space, and then another two hours where we splash down in the water where a ship will pick us up and bring everybody ashore. Okay, guys, so you were casually dropping in something like, you know, about the biosphere there, like in the way that other people casually drop in that they went to the supermarket. Now, some of our listeners are a little bit younger and may not actually remember or know what a biosphere is. Can you just give 30 seconds on that? Sure. So back in the uh, mid 80s, it became clear that humanity was having an impact on the global climate and environment. And we didn't really understand how ecosystems worked. And at the same time, we were seeing a resurgence in the idea of space travel. Uh, the space shuttle was flying. Going to Mars and beyond was a, uh, a big goal. So uh, a venture that was essentially sort of the, the brainchild of Buckminster Fuller uh, and a few others to build an artificial biosphere. The idea was to test the idea that we can take ecosystems on the Earth, bottle them up into a teeny tiny environment relative to the Earth, and see if we can make those ecosystems function. And we called it Biosphere 2. And so it served a dual purpose of a laboratory for the environment and a prototype space base. Uh, and Jane and I uh, were on the design team and uh, operations team and then crew member in crew members inside the first mission, which was two years and 20 minutes long. Uh, where two we, years. <laughs> yes. Yeah, two years. So you guys must be looking at like like two months corona lockdown and you're like, oh, please. Yeah, I'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're weak losers. Yeah, okay, gotcha. I actually, when, when the whole lockdown started, we actually got asked to do a lot of things like podcasts to say, How did you get through it? Tell us what to do. <laughs> so we were there for inside for two years. And essentially, the result of that two-year trial was that it really looks like you can build an artificial biosphere. Nothing happened that wasn't sort of part of the you know, a design change wouldn't fix. And uh, it was an amazing experience to create a world and then live in it and depend on it uh, for your minute-to-minute -minute livelihood. You know, we would 
We would track the oxygen and carbon dioxide and food stores and trace contaminants, you know, all the time. We were in incredible touch with the functioning of our biosphere. And I suppose I would uh, I would add also that as we think about you know becoming interplanetary species, I mean, eventually we're going to need something like a biosphere, right? I mean, we really do. And and it was really exciting to be part of of building the very first one where we really were growing all our food. Our water was completely recycled inside. We were breathing the same air over and over again. And in this biosphere, in this, if you will, if you will uh, a prototype space base, in this one, it was all bioregenerative, meaning that all of our life support came from the biology within the building that we were living, which was pretty awesome. I mean, that was, that was incredibly forward-leaning. That's just, I mean, it's just fascinating. By the way, I mean, we'll close the bracket on this topic in, in, in a minute. But it, probably, like, if we send somebody to Mars on a six or more month trip, it should be you guys, because you guys basically, like, did this for two years without sort of killing each other. And and we've recently seen in the Netflix series a way that, you know, if, if a crew doesn't work, it might get, like, really bad after just a month or so. <laughs> but <laughs> We worked on a project for a long time called Inspiration Mars, which was uh, designed just to do a flyby of Mars, to say, let's just go there and come back. And uh, Dennis Tito funded it. Um, and we were just trying to sort of talk about early missions to Mars. And so it became clear that, well, the minimum crew is two. You really shouldn't have one. And then they needed to be older because of cancer and radiation and all of that. And it would be good if they were a couple. And then, like, it, we're in this big meeting, and then everybody looks at Jane and I and says, well, we know who they are, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, so for a while, we were the couple going to Mars, which was actually pretty fun to really think about. <laughs> okay, guys, we, we understand by now your, your resume is pretty impressive. So two years biosphere, almost going to Mars, and now balloons. So, yeah, talking about Mars, <laughs> baby steps to space. The first, that, the first that baby steps. It sounds like it makes so much sense when you say it like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, as Steve Jobs famously said, retrospectively, the dots connect. So now you're uh, now you're back to baby steps into space, and the baby step here is the balloons. So you've already started talking about it a little bit. And by the way, I love the fact that you started talking about the you know the amenities of of the capsule, which I believe is called Neptune. So the fact that there is um, a bathroom, I think that's at least for me, maybe many other people, always the first question you think about when you're like, oh, is there a bathroom on this on this rocket? And and the bar, you know, it sounds like a hell of a lot nicer than than those Soyuz capsules that uh, the the space tourists went up <laughs> went up on. No, we, we say you know a real spaceship has to have a bar. Yeah, so that the spaceship Neptune uh, has it will be initially for eight passengers and a pilot, uh, which would be be really cool to be able to go with your family or your loved ones, and you know your the best. Uh, uh, the best tweet will come from space, of course, uh, and soon from Spaceship Neptune. Uh, so that that's pretty exciting. The, the best uh, Facebook status update would be at the edge of space, looking down. And uh, but it's you know it's interesting. There's two hours of time at uh, we go to just over 30 kilometers or 100,000 feet, and so it's really time to you know either to soak in the view, or uh, you know artists are talking to us about wanting to you know, do music or make impressionist art, or there's, there's all kinds of events and things we can do with this capsule uh, in that two hour period. So it's uh, it's quite exciting. We already have a list of people who want to get married or propose as well. 
Oh, well, I guess that would make a lot of sense. You know, you you forgive me. I mean, this is just my mind. But then when I talk, when when you say weddings, my and because this is like so high up, my my next thought is okay. Then the wedding night. I mean, isn't there going to be people who want to like jo join the hundred thousand feet or whatever you want to call it club and the twenty mile high like? club? Yes. Yeah, we've got that... an answer. It's the twenty mile high club. Yes. The answer is. I am sure we can figure out how to manage that for you up there at the edge of space. <laughs> is there, okay, you're talking about eight passengers, but is there like a pilot or some somebody? So there is a ninth person who's the pilot. And, you know, to, to a degree, that person is really there for you. There's some things like with the life support that they can attend to, but we really fly it and can fly it from the ground or automatically. And, uh, but the pilot can take over if need be. All of our testing is done in the beginning without people on board. So we'll be very accustomed to operating the vehicle without a pilot on board, uh, but they're they're there for safety. Okay, so for the people who want to join the 20-mile high club, they'll need to send, well, unless they're into that kind of thing, they'll have to send the pilot to the loo or something for... Or we train them, you know, as I was saying... We can <laughs> what? So, you know, a little bit of pilot training and they're, they're good... Wait a minute. Wait, I think I have a say in this. I, I think that doesn't sound like a good plan at all. <laughs> I don't want to be the pilot. I wouldn't either. That's where a headset comes in. It's like a really good headset. I, I don't know, Raphael. You've opened a whole can of worms here. Ugh, love it. Uh, wait to be the FAA with this one. Well, for this particular flight, we don't need a pilot because <laughs> we've trained this one pilot who will not be distracted during the flight. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, okay. Um, so besides that, um, is, is there any other activities you guys would like people to do up there? Okay, science. Okay, let's get let, let let's bring this down to something. Oh no, before sorry, sorry, before before the science. I noted down the science, we shall talk about science. That's super exciting. But like okay. Let's stick with the tourism type activities for a moment. Oh, sure. So, yeah, we are designing the interior to be quite flexible and, and reasonably roomy so that you can, you know, get up and move around. And we will, for some special flights, uh, have really high quality uh, live streaming so you can live stream events around the world. Uh, so, you know, we're envisioning having all kinds of events. I know we talked about a few, but I, I could really I go for sending, inviting to fly with us uh, some world leaders and maybe some spiritual leaders and, you know, all kinds of different people from all kinds of walks of life so that they really get this experience of seeing Earth in space. I mean, that's that's what this trip is about, right? I mean, we're, we like to joke about the bar and the loo, and those are absolutely incredibly important. But what we're really designing this experience around is the view. Because that's when you talk to an astronaut, that's what they say sticks with them for a lifetime. And it changes them forever. Some of them are changed forever. And so I think it's going to be an extraordinarily um, moving experience for, for some people who go on this trip. And so we want to really uh, sort of help curate this entire flight to enable sort of the most incredible experience of seeing our world as Spaceship Earth in space. Yeah, you can see renders of the capsule design on spaceperspective.com, but it's uh, to give a sense of size. It's about 16 feet or four and a half meters across at the widest uh, and is constructed uh, with vertical windows, which have a, a structural benefit, but also uh, not breaking the view from 
seeing the earth all the way up to seeing the sky actually turned out to be an important part of the window design, that it was better to have vertical breaks than horizontal breaks uh, in the view. So we spent a lot of time figuring out the views, figuring out the seating and configuration uh, with the capsule uh, and making it really into a different otherworldly experience. And, and part of that experience is actually when, when you talk to some astronauts, they they say they really got it when they had a, an experience that gave them what the scale of the earth is. So one we talked to said, you know, I saw my ranch and suddenly got like able to sort of scale it up to seeing the curvature of the earth, how big the earth was. And it's not that big. Alan Eustace, who we took up on a balloon, said he got it in a different way because the ascent is so slow. You know, in the beginning, he saw pebbles on the ground, then people's feet, then people, then the part of the runway, then the airport, then the town, the community and the landscape. And this all, you know, finally the curvature of the earth, this all took two hours. And said his brain could keep up with the scale change in a way he's never been able to do an aircraft before. And he flies a lot. And by the time he was seeing the curvature of the earth, it all was in scale. It was slow enough to keep up with. And that was a really moving experience to, to suddenly get really how big or small, depending on your perspective, our Earth is. Yeah, I mean, I think the seeing the thin blue line from up there of our atmosphere just must be pretty mind-blowing. I mean, we've all seen the pictures, but seeing it with your own eyes is, uh, yeah, that's going to be something. Yeah, I think I, mean, I definitely want to fly with you guys. I mean, the closest I've come to this is um, so years ago when when it was still around. I I, I sometimes flew on Concorde, and people some people may know Concorde actually flies more than twice as high as regular aircraft. So it actually flew at so high that the sky wasn't blue anymore. It was actually like really dark blue, purple, and you could see the curvature of the Earth. And I remember the first time I looked out of the window and I could see like the Earth like being round. I was like geez, wow, this is actually totally different. Like it's something clicks in you and you're like, damn flat earthers. And like, yay, NASA was right. And, and just, this, is, this, is like a, this is like a finite place. It doesn't go on forever. And so of course you guys are another whatever 50, 60,000 feet or something up, right? So it's, it's going to be even much more dramatic. You really have the full space view, I guess, with the black sky and seeing the really thin, fragile atmosphere. And I think what you're alluding for, um, and some people may not know it or not heard of it is is the so-called um, overview effect right i remember i mean like you said several astronauts have described it and i think one of the apollo astronauts maybe was at mitchell said something like well you know you really want to drag the politicians up there and like show it to them and say look at that you son of a bitch and <laughs> I, I think that's probably that's probably also what you had in mind when you were talking about uh, taking authorities up there yeah that's exactly right so you know obviously you hear you've heard a lot about um, astronauts saying you know, there are no boundaries when you know national boundaries when you look down on Earth from space. But I think you also get this incredible sense. I imagine you get this incredible sense of sort of where we are in the greater scheme of this planetary biosphere that we inhabit in this vacuum of space, all hurtling in the same direction. I think it's uh, it's pretty sobering. It's a pretty sobering thought. Now, on one hand, it's incredibly sobering. On the other hand, I think it's just so extraordinary inspirational. You know, I mean, I just think it's a spectacular idea, concept, and reality. I was going to say, it's, uh, it's interesting how, you know, visceral experiences tend to be 
some of the biggest teaching moments in people's lives. And, you know, we've known that the scientific community has had established facts that we're having global climate change for over 40 years, right? So that this isn't a new idea. This isn't new data, but we're still arguing about it. And so we're hoping that offering a visceral experience that just sort of helps put all of this in perspective uh, could could have a, a positive impact. And, you know, we, you sort of dream about the day when you imagine when every school or at least every school district has somebody in it who's been to the edge of space and can talk with students about their experience seeing that, you know, the earth is, you know, a pretty small place in a big, vast, dark bit of space. I think, I think those are important lessons that we should be teaching people early on. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, in terms of, um, what you will actually see is you guys, obviously, it's, it's obviously not going to orbit. It's not going to be the scenario of the ISS where you go around the entire Earth every one and a half hours. Where do you guys, well, I guess you already said it, you, go, you guys are going to start flying from Kennedy Space Center. Then yeah. kind of where does the trajectory take you to? What will people actually sort of see? What parts of the, the world? So the stratosphere that we're uh, pretty deep into as we're floating essentially on top of the Earth's atmosphere, we're on top of about 99% of the Earth's atmosphere. That part of the stratosphere goes to the east part of the Earth to the west part of the Earth. So we'll take off from Kennedy Space Center. And uh, for example, in the summer, we will fly over Florida and land in the Gulf. Uh, so you'll see pretty much top to bottom of Florida. You'll see all of Florida east to west. Uh, you, as we take off, you'll see down to the Bahamas. So you've got about almost a 400-mile view of, you know, a bit more than 600-kilometer view of the Earth. And so if you draw that circle on a map in every direction, you've got, you know, an 800-mile or a 1,200-kilometer diameter view and, and you can really one of the special things about flying from florida is and we hear this from astronauts when you can recognize sort of landmass you can recognize the shape of a landmass in the water surrounded by oceans it again helps put everything in perspective because you're used to seeing that on a globe so florida is actually a great place to fly from because there are land masses that you can easily recognize exactly yeah like the, like the shape the very shape of florida and that makes sense and i guess like you said like you have islands like the bahamas now i gotta ask if you're flying from kennedy space center i mean is there a theoretical chance that like would you guys be allowed to fly when there's rocket launches as well uh so we're already in those conversations about the scheduling and you know, we're out of the range in about 15 or 20 minutes, of the, depending on the, the time of year. So uh, certainly it's uh, it's very possible to imagine that after we launch, there'll be a rocket launch. So uh, you could be seeing as you fly over Florida, uh, looking back at Kennedy and seeing a rocket launch. It's going to be really cool. So just to give you a sense of scale and what you would yeah. see you see one of our launches. So I think I mentioned earlier that this is really antithetical to a rocket launch. So, you know, rocket launch sure. is all about the sound and you see fire and it's, you know, you feel the energy. So with this, you, it's completely silent. And when we stand the balloon up, it stands about 700 feet tall. So if you're familiar with Kennedy wow. Space, you know that there's the VAB and what is sure. that like? 300? No, 600 feet yeah. tall. Oh, they're 600 feet tall. So we're taller than the VAB. So this thing is going to be huge, and you're going to be able to see it from a long way. Wow. Okay. That actually, that's it's, it's good you bring that up. 
So I also wanted to ask you, and partly because I really want to fly myself, I wanted to ask you a number of sort of like safety questions, which I suspect other listeners may also have. So awesome. this is a this is a giant balloon. So I guess the first question is sort of like, you know, although that's probably, I'm assuming, really unlikely, and we have a lot of experience by now with stratospheric balloons, like if the balloon fails at some point in time, for whatever reason, is there any sort of like, um, you know, safety system? Absolutely. So there is a parachute that is already deployed between the balloon and the capsule. That parachute is set to uh, open up, even if you start to begin uh, to sense that there's a possible issue with the balloon, uh, the parachute has a deployment mechanism in it. So we can actually have the parachute out and open uh, while the balloon is still flying. And if we need to, the transition from the balloon over to the parachute and parachute down. So there's two completely separate ways to get down or the two can work in tandem together as the as the way to come down so we've we really worked the the safety of this system you know the big the big transition that the commercial space industry is going through is getting to routine operations and routine operations mean that the numbers are such that no matter how good you think you are one day you'll have a not so good day. And you've got to have systems really worked out uh, to deal with that. We're doing a lot of work now with uh, some of the uh, pararescue folks and contingency operations folks here, uh, sort of planning out you know, what happens on one of those days. Yeah, I guess the advantage is if the balloon fails, you get the the, the full astronaut splashdown experience uh, using, using parachutes. <laughs> That's a, I mean, that's a great way of thinking about it. We're going to I mean, maybe you know, you know, you, you could offer it as like a sort of alternative package. Like people pay more and they get like the parachute experience or something. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just uh, just want to throw that in there. Not funny, even though I laughed. I would also like to say though that these, it is incredibly unlikely that the balloon fails. Um, just so I, that you I'm are sure. aware of that. All right, next point on my checklist of safety items. You're going to be operating at an altitude where, at least as far as I know, like fighter jet, pi fighter jet pilots, they'd all be wearing pressure suits. What would happen in sort of like the event of like some, you know, depressurization of the capsule? So we're not putting people in pressure suits. Uh, when you sort of go through the risk-reward trade of a pressure suit, it doesn't work out. Because we're not in a high, highly dangerous or high-energy environment. So, you know... Astronauts wear pressure suits when we're rocketing off the surface of the Earth or when we're, uh, you know, docking with another vehicle. But in between times, when everything is quiescent, then we don't. So we are always in that safe, quiescent mode, sort of like the International Space Station. We're just sort of cruising along. And so we don't have pressure suits, but okay, let's run through the scenario. What if we get a leak? Um, we have oxygen available, so we can partially depressurize the capsule to feed that leak. And then we're about five minutes from, or four or five minutes from being low enough in the atmosphere to where uh, we don't need to feed a leak anymore. So because we have such rapid access to getting back down low enough to where it's safe, and we don't have sort of big high energy, high vibe environments going on, we're really very safe in that regard. Okay, cool. 
All right, next item. And I realize I may sound like some sort of risk management or insurance guy, but I'm I'm, I'm truly curious about this um, these safety awesome. items. And I suspect I suspect other people will as well. So we might as well go through it. Radiation. You obviously you know you're flying a little bit higher than or a lot higher than jets, um, but it's only a few hours. Um, what's the sort of radiation load on the body? Is it comparable to a long distance flight, or is it significantly different? So it's yeah somewhat comparable to you know, spending, uh, you know, an hour on ISS, uh, you know, we're okay. still inside the, the magnetosphere field of the earth. You know, obviously things like UV is quite high, but those will get filtered out by the windows. So it's a bit more radiation, but I think the total dose is certainly going to be a lot less than somebody who spends a career as a pilot or, uh, you know, a few hours on the International Space Station. So you're going to have um, UV filtering. What if somebody wants to get the ultimate suntan? Is there going to be like a special window option? I think <laughs> <I'm kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> some, some products won't be offered. Yes. Yeah, this is yes. not a tanning salon. Uh, so. <laughs> that, that <is> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, the sun is very, very bright. It's all very direct. It, it's a very eerie light when you look at pictures from that altitude in space where there's no sort point. of light. It's either bright or shaded. And so it's going to be lots of bright light coming in the windows. And we're, we're sure we're going to have to have ways to uh, to either tint the windows or uh, people have sunglasses, but it's it's very Tinting bright. The windows. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, there's, there's lots of really okay. great tech, tech out now that will allow us to um, automatically tint as, as it goes into the sun. And the, and the capsule will slowly rotate too, which is really cool. Once you're at altitude, it'll just very slowly rotate. So it won't always be pointing in the same direction. So everybody will have a, an amazing view of the sun or the sunrise. I can't wait to see the sunrise. And oh, by the way, when we go and see the aurora borealis from the edge of space i am definitely on that one yes that's the um the northern the northern lights uh, that, that would be amazing i guess and um so last item on my and i probably forgot some of my safety lists was sort of so okay splashdown we know from like you know the astronaut launches um they always monitor the sea conditions at the potential splashdown zones like if something went wrong there and you splashed down and it was really like you know rough sea conditions i, I suppose the capsule is designed in a way that you can um basically hang in there and enjoy the bar until rescue comes along, right? Yeah, certainly. You can stay in the capsule for a long time. It's essentially uh, part spacecraft, part boat. But, you know, we launch six hours before splashing down, and six-hour weather forecasts are really good. So, you know, we're going to have a very good sense of what the weather is going to be at the splashdown location as part of our go-no-go criteria uh, and then we're actually working with uh, the folks that do a lot of jack and capsule recovery work on our processes for stabilizing and recovering and keeping those times really short. Uh, and uh, part of the work we're doing in our first test flight, uh, Q1 next year, is testing those navigation and trajectory prediction algorithms and uh, seeing how close we can get the recovery ship to the splashdown. I got another idea for you. You could ask like SpaceX to borrow one of these like boats with the giant nets and just for fun kind of come down in the net or something. <laughs> like, again, oh I'm yeah, interesting uh, <laughs> ideas for how we might do things like that in the future. Though in the beginning, you will be flashing down the plane. 
Okay, so I'm kind of basically, I think, through through my very short safety list. But this also, this this all basically makes me believe this is like you know, um, like anybody can fly, right? There is no like uh, major safety risk. Everything is sort of like thought of. Like it doesn't sound like you need any specific training either, right? That's right. So you know, it, as you bring up flying, I mean, that is a way that we're thinking about this, right? If you can get on a commercial flight, you can get on our flight. That's the analogy that we're using. We want it to, uh, to be as easy and comfortable as that. Uh, so you're right. There, I think there will be a little bit of training. There'll be like a safety briefing. You know, we we'll want to yeah. make sure that you're comfortable in the capsule. There'll be some things like that, but really not a whole lot. What I do think is going to be fun is to really think about how we help people prepare for the flight so that they're mentally ready uh, to really go on this flight and experience Earth in space uh, and and make the most of this extraordinary journey that we're going to go on. Yeah. And sorry, I realized now, Tabor, I interrupted you. You were saying that so parts of the year you would splash down in the Gulf and does that then apply other parts of the year you would go towards the um, Atlantic or somewhere? Yes. Yeah, so part of the year we'll be out in the Atlantic, uh, just north of the Bahamas. Uh, and part of the year will be in the Gulf. Uh, so it's um, uh, two different experiences, uh, one location. I guess that also then probably if you go out to sea, that I guess implicitly you go out of the um, sort of the U.S. territory as well, which I guess means you could even there's even like more activities you could contemplate, which uh, you couldn't do on land. Right. If somebody I don't know, you want to have a high stakes poker game or something, I guess. that. Would be <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Actually, I was funnily enough, I was talking with uh, uh, with guys who run uh, the World Poker Tournament. Yeah, you totally uh, should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it will be actually kind of fun. I'm not a poker player myself. I have never really quite understood gambling, so I don't. I don't really get the attraction. However, I think doing it for space would be really cool. Yeah, so we're we're regulated as a licensed launch, so just like SpaceX and, and Virgin fly, and so. Um, the uh, the spaceship will be uh, uh, under the Outer Space Treaty, and I'm sure we'll find lots of interesting ways to test the treaty and the Artemis Accords using uh, spaceship debt. <laughs> well said. T- t- testing the limits of space law. I like it. I <laughs> love it. Yeah, I love it. Oh, that's good. God, I, I, I realized we kind of the most most of the use cases we talked about until so far were basically the twenty mile high club and the the poker games. But I promise we'll get to the science part. Like, in <laughs> um, and um, and we always talked about the overview effect, so that was important. Now, but uh, finishing up, okay, so you can start flying from KSC, but I I know that you guys are already thinking about flying in other places on Earth, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I I think. You're exactly right. We, we're starting right here in the U.S., uh, in Florida, and possibly elsewhere also in the U.S. And frankly, we're already in conversations with Hawaii and Alaska. For mm-hmm. uh, you know, Alaska would be really cool because, as we talked about earlier, you can see the Northern Lights from there, and just an extraordinary view over the over the ice, and just the crazy view from there. Uh, you know, in Hawaii because it's a beautiful location, looking out over the islands, and great access to Asia. So for us, as we think about uh, going to uh, operate from other parts of the world, you know, it's about two things. It's about, you know, giving access to uh, Spaceship Neptune to new markets that's, you know, easier for people to to get to. But also it's about really uh, giving people different experiences. You know, they can choose to to uh, go from the U.S. where, you know, we definitely will be very 
based in the whole human spaceflight tradition from here, right? Or, you know, uh, different kinds of experiences, you know, like in parts of Asia, we can envision, you know, completely different experiences or, or even in, in Africa. I mean, you can really steep them in very, very different, what you wrap around the experience and the kind of the theme of, of how this is um, sort of uh, portrayed and, and presented but also the views of what you're seeing. I mean, just all of the different locations. I've sometimes, you know, I, I ask um, astronauts often what their favorite view is. You know, I know they'll all say, oh my gosh, everywhere is my favorite view. But then when you really dig into it, uh, what I keep hearing again and again is, as Tegu was saying earlier, places that are recognizable. So obviously Europe is one place that we definitely are going to want to operate from at some point yeah. so that we can see over the Mediterranean. Now, I, it's just it's going to be very exciting to think about the different locations uh, that we can we can operate from. So the uh, one of the big reasons, actually, that we went to a splashdown was that it became very hard to work uh, the scaling part of the business plan if you were restricted to only to land locations where you could uh, launch and land, uh, you know, in proximity and finding just landing zones to, to land on outside of the US became extremely difficult. But when he said, well, we're gonna launch from land and eventually we'll launch from a ship, which will make it really flexible, but splash down, suddenly a whole bunch of places open up. You know, we've talked about Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, there's a series of islands in Japan that would be amazing. Uh, you know, South and Southeast Asia would be phenomenal. Uh, you can imagine all the places you could take off from islands in the Mediterranean, you know, the Canaries, you just, uh, the world becomes your oyster and all of these different locations form the basis of an amazing expansion uh, and scaling for the company. Yeah, I, I mentioned this to you guys in our private conversations before. I'm going to try to get you guys down to Brazil so people can actually see the Amazon from from above and see how amazing that that is but you're right there's so many there's so many amazing places in the world and again it's just gonna expand everybody's mind to to see them in in, in much more um you know size and scale than otherwise is possible okay now i did have one other question so <laughs> on, on, on sort of the sort of the tourism part you know actually because most people who have heard about stratospheric balloons at all, they probably have heard about it because of that parachute jump that um, that Red Bull organized with Felix yeah. Baumgarten. That back in that's a while ago now. It's almost ten years ago, I think, two thousand and twelve, maybe. Yeah. And um, oh, yeah. That's so what about news, Raphael? Come on, you know that we yeah. beat that record. <laughs> I was, you know, I was basically giving you the chance. Uh, this was me kind of. <laughs> Carry this, on. this was me. This was me preparing the ground for you, so you can say, "Oh, Rafael, did you know that?" And yeah, and, and Bob Gardner, I don't think, is yet to forgive us for beating his record in two years. Sorry, Felix. Yeah, sorry about that. So uh, we, we were doing it pretty quietly because our pilot was Alan Eustace, uh, who's a Google executive at the time, and uh, we really rethought a lot of how to do these kinds of experiences and jumps from the edge of space. And learned a lot, frankly, from Baumgartner's flight. Uh, and Joe Kittinger, who had the record before Baumgartner, uh, worked with uh, Baumgartner a lot and uh, wrote a report that was very helpful to us and really helped us figure out uh, the need for and how to transonically stabilize the spacesuit on the way down. So 
uh, we didn't have to actively uh, have the parachutists or Alan try to keep himself stable the way Baumgartner did, who ended up on his back in a spin, really quite yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Uh, Alan came down totally under control, uh, Mach 1.2, uh, 822 miles an hour. Uh, so uh, a, a great a film was actually made of it that you know, Alan wanted to find a way to make the experience accessible to to students and people and to sort of make something that people would understand all the great things you can do with technology. Uh, the film's called 14 Minutes from Earth, uh, mm. and it's essentially sort of a reality TV version that takes three years of incredibly boring testing and turns it into an hour and a half of you know, near disaster every other scene. Uh, but it's great fun and uh, sort of shows the spirit of the team that put it together. And it's it's that team that is doing space perspective. Uh, these are people that we've worked with for over 12 years um, and have a long history together of stratospheric ballooning and human flight. Uh, and you know, there's nothing like sending a really good friend up in a spacesuit you designed and made to the edge of space and supersonically dropping him back down to make a team really work well together. And so I'm not sure if we can really clear exactly what we did with this. So you may recall that Felix stepped out of a capsule underneath the balloon. In this instance, it was a bit different. The team built this incredible spacesuit that was meant to go through all these different environments that he had to go through. So we literally just hung him underneath the balloon in the spacesuit. And so for the entire two-hour trip up to the edge of space, he was hanging in the spacesuit, looking out over the world. Uh, we took him up under the balloon to 136,000 feet, and then we dropped him. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that qualifies as some sort of trust exercise. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And I have to say... It was, you know, an incredibly exciting day when we when we finally did uh, break the record with Alan. I was so happy we were done because the team had done an incredible job of making this. You know, we were talking about safety earlier and, you know, this is a really dangerous thing we were doing. You know, trying to figure out how to keep Alan, you know, safe so that he could come back to his wife and kids. And we knew that he would be able to, right? It was it was a really dangerous thing. And the, and the team did an amazing job of really figuring out all of the, you know, the off-nominal scenarios and, you know, how to combat them and mitigate them. So I will say, however, I was really happy when it was done. <laughs> it was also an interesting exercise in uh, what would be routine operations. So uh, we did... Uh, the, the previous time between human flights to the stratosphere was six months. Uh, and we uh, did two envelope expansion flights into the stratosphere, plus the third actual record-breaking flight, all in 21 days. Uh, and not once in all three of those flights did we ever get off our primary system onto a backup, uh, either in the recovery team or on the flight. Uh, so it was it really all came together quite well. And uh, we used this one spacesuit. We had one suit the whole system. So we were refurbishing the suit, putting it all back together and flying again in a week. So is that like another sort of like, uh, you could have a pay extra option. You have like eight people in the Neptune capsule. And then if you want, you can dangle, dangle from the bottom and uh, in a space suit. Okay, Raphael, you are going to hear it uh, here first. The answer is no. No, <laughs> not going to be offering space diving. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> at least not a, not for a while <laughs> okay how much do you have 
All right. Okay, Jane, we're coming to the science part. <laughs> Tell us all about it. Yes. Yay. So you know what's what's really fun about this is it you know the stratosphere is uh, has been studied very little. You know we've been spent sending uh, these high altitude balloons into the stratosphere for a long time, but. They have been, you know, very infrequent flights. And so what we're really excited about is that we get to send spaceship Neptune up to the stratosphere on a very regular basis, doing these transects through the atmosphere. Uh, you know, and historically balloons have been used, you know, this kind of space balloon has been have been used for you know, astrophysics and solar physics and astronomy, and we'll be able to do all of that with this. We'll be able to put, you know, different kinds of telescopes on there. But what we can also do is some really interesting climate change research and up, upper atmospheric science, which will be really important research because there's all kinds of energy transfer that has been very little understood. And it turns out that the stratosphere sort of almost acts like a, a cap on the troposphere, which is, you know, the atmosphere that we all walk around in. And, you know, the interaction between the two is not entirely understood in great, great fidelity. And so we get to uh, get to really shine a spotlight on some of that, which is really exciting. Yeah, a great example of that is we don't really understand the variability and how fast how long it takes for some carbon dioxide that we emit on the surface to get up through the tropopause, which is between the troposphere and the stratosphere, into the stratosphere and become part of that blanket over the top of the Earth. And that, it turns out, is a pretty significant part of predicting global change. Uh, but it takes a large number of transects to, to get that mixing rate down. So uh, it, it really turns out to be somewhat serendipitously really important research. Why am I thinking about Venus right now? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's the ultimate space balloon. <laughs> oh, that would be cool. Well, because, Tabri, I'm sure you can talk about the physics of it, but it turns out that uh, balloons are a great way to do science, maybe even travel and live on Venus, you know, in a sci-fi world of the future. Yes, and let's go figure out if there is, let's go say hi to the life that's there, right? I'm going to be optimistic, and I'm going to say there's life there. The atmosphere of Venus is cool enough and thick enough that uh, it, it's really a great uh, place to put relatively small balloons that can carry a pretty large mass and stay there for a long time. So uh, Venus is actually the ideal ballooning planet. There you go, F future roadmap of uh, space perspective. And may I say with all of the science parts, so those of you listeners who have now gotten excited about, you know, joining the 20 mile club, but are worried about being called completely decadent uh, for spending, I think it's believe it's $125,000 for the 20 mile experience. You got the answer you can give to people who call you decadent. Well, I'm doing science at the same time. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Very well done, Raphael. <laughs> I'm, I'm just laying out all the marketing messages for you guys. <laughs> but you know, yeah, Venus, Venus is an... Write <laughs> that down. You were talking about Venus and obviously, I mean, this is half jokingly, but actually really only half jokingly, but sort of where do you see this like in, I don't know what the right time frame is, 10 years or so, the whole, the whole space perspective project? Well, certainly we would like it to be you know, relatively commonplace that you talk to somebody who has been to the edge of space and 
that it's sort of a normal part of, you know, right now Americans think of, you know, we'll go spend your, your summer in Europe after you graduate high school, right? Or sort of, you know, that in Europe, we have the Wanderjahr where, where we, uh, you know, people should go travel the, travel the planet for a while. And that's part of, you know, a robust education going to the edge of space will be will be like that this is something that everybody should experience uh in their life and it's really normalized space travel uh, and i think that also helps normalize support for space agencies and support for deep space exploration and so i think with accessibility we will find support across the board for all kinds of, of space exploits yeah and on a more uh perhaps mundane level so when we think about, you know, where what some of the other things we want to do, um, aside from making this available all around the planet and increasingly more available to more people, you know, we want to be able to make these uh, more long duration flights. We wouldn't it be awesome if you could actually go completely around the planet? Uh, yeah, that would be amazing. So there's a lot of things that I'm sure we haven't even thought about yet. Uh, that we can envision, but certainly being able to extend this to have overnights and then eventually around the planet would be extraordinary. Like how long would something like, let's say if you like, not even around the planet, but if you did like a transatlantic crossing, like how, is that feasible and how long roughly would that take? Yeah, yeah there's actually been um, around the world flights that have been done at lower altitudes um, yeah. and transatlantic flights that have been done. It uh, Around the world is about 20 days, 15 to 20 days. Okay. Uh, transatlantic would be, you know, three to five. Okay. So you know, it's actually not not sort of a a, a crazy amount of time if you think that uh, you're you're very comfortable and you're seeing you know the world go by underneath. Uh, you can imagine it being a, a really fascinating experience. It's almost almost like going back to the good old days of the the zeppelins, the blimps, right? Like a really like nice atmosphere. Like you said, you have the bar. It's like a really nice and leisurely way to travel. I mean, uh, yeah. Funnily enough, one I, I have a photograph. I have one of those old sepia tone photographs of one of my relatives in 2019 doing exactly that, going from Europe to America. And speaking of years, 2019, um, I forgot to, totally forgot to ask you, when, when is this going to be um, Sorry, starting to fly? Sorry, I just have to clarify what I said a minute ago. I said 2019. Sure. I meant 1919. Yeah, that kind I mean, of makes more sense, I suppose. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about years, um, when, uh, when will people be able to fly on, on Neptune? So we start our uh, test flight program next year. Uh, with uncrewed uh, flights. Currently, our plan is to have our first uh, test pilot to go up in 23 and the first commercial flights around the end of 24, very early 25. And can people, uh, when will people be able to, to book? So actually, people can already, what I would say is get your place in line. We, people are lining up. We've got a fairly long line already. So go onto our website, thespaceperspective.com. And all you do is fill out a brief form and that kind of gets you place in line. And then uh, next year, we will be actually uh, putting uh, tickets on sale and letting those people then buy their tickets first. And I believe the target price point you said was $125,000. Yeah, we haven't exactly set the price yet. So don't entirely hold us to that, but that gives okay. you an idea of the kind of price that we're looking at. 
Okay, people have a, a few, a few, a couple of years or so to to invest and uh, save and, and all of that anyway. <laughs> so that's good. Cool, guys. We're winding down here. I've been talking for an hour. I just wanted to ask you the same couple of questions we always ask here on the podcast. And uh, one is basically, if you weren't doing Space Perspective, and it's such an amazing project. I mean, I don't know what you would do otherwise. But if you had to do something else, is there something specific you would do in in space? I would work on biospheres. I think it's a really cool, cool concept, right? To be able to actually, you know, one of the things that we're, we, humanity, is just beginning to think about is not just the technology for going to space, but the experience of being in space. So, which is obviously what we're uh, working very hard on with space perspective. And then that that then extends to what is the experience, what is the human experience of living on Mars or the moon or something? And I don't think we all envision ourselves being supremely comfortable, you know, living in a very small capsule. I, I think that we need to work on, and it would be very exciting to work on things like a biosphere that is really reliable and robust for a long-term Long-term travel. Yeah, there's, there's been surprisingly little work in this area. Well, you know, we did advice for two or 30 years ago. A lot of technology changes have happened since then. Uh, a lot of work at NASA. Uh, but you haven't seen, you know, long-duration habitat trials done or closed system testing done. So it would be, be amazing to put a crew in a small biosphere that's recycling their water and growing their food. Uh, I think it would be an interesting reflection, uh, you know, of the Earth, too, to have people be able to see a crew inside a biosphere, you know, taking care of their biosphere. So I, I'm, I'm sure something in the area of, of bioregenerative life support would be something that uh, that we do. And since uh, for decades now, Jane and I have always seemed to have done things together, I'm sure we'd be, be doing that together. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. And it's it's about time to start doing that now, given that we may actually, you know, reach out to places like the moon and the Mars soon. And and also the existing analog missions around the world, like there's some cool ones, but they don't really do anything, anything close to that, I guess. But guys, I want to ask you, ask you the, the other question we always ask. And uh, one of you had already mentioned or referred to to science fiction before. Um, do you guys like, like science fiction? And if so, what, what is some of your favorite science fiction? It can be anything. It can be books, movies, TV series. We're total sci-fi geeks. I guess I'd say early on, you know, I was really a Roddenberry Star Trek fan mm -hmm. because it was a very positive view of the future. You know, so many of sure. these movies are very dystopian and uh, you know, and the cultural and, and justice divide is even deeper. And it's all about you know, Star Wars is great, but it's it's war. It's every movie is war. Yeah. I'm pretty pretty dyed in the wool uh, Star Trek fan. Thank you, Gene Roddenberry. Probably accepting Deep Space my Deep Space Nine. Then I'm guessing <laughs> because that's all. <laughs> yeah. war. No, so, so of course I, I'm I'm a total sci-fi uh, fan, and in fact, that's one reason that I'm here today is that I used to read Isaac Asimov under you know under my covers at night with what we call in England a torch, not a flashlight. <laughs> and I too am a Star Trekkie, and of course that's why we have the Space Perspective Operation Center, aka the Spark right here uh -huh. at the landing facility. I think every space company has a spark somewhere. Uh 
Did you guys, now I'm trying to think, are you guys aware of any science fiction where there's um, balloons involved? Like, I'm starting to think, I'm actually like right now I'm rereading Hyperion and they have some sort of like, you know, airship, but it really flies just above the ground. Is there well, any there balloons anywhere? Yeah, so there wasn't really sci-fi per se, but there was that really fun film called... Aviator? No, oh, not, not Aviator. That was cool. Oh, what was it called? They used a, a stratospheric balloon where the woman was in the stratospheric balloon. Oh, it was and one of the up. James Bond films. Well, it wasn't James Bond, but it was like, oh, I wish you had, I wish you'd asked me that before <laughs> and I could have gotten the name because I can't think of the name now of the film. But yes, there have been. Um, I'm going to have to look it up. Hang on. Well, Jane, you actually inadvertently just gave me a perfect way of closing this up or a closing comment because, I mean, as I think, as everybody knows by now, we have a certain movie star flying to the ISS, uh, probably in October 2021. And, you know, so the question is, how can we top this or counter this? And, you know, Jane, you being originally British, why don't you guys get James Bond up in the balloon? Right. Oh, there is totally going to be a, uh, a James Bond film done in Neptune. I'm, I am positive of that. yeah that would be super cool and if i can also say that my dad was a dyed in the wool aston martin guy he loved it so of course aston martin is totally a part of james bond i don't think you can separate the two brands these days so i'm all over it let's do it and that's and that's i don't know how to top this for closing the the episode guys it's been an absolute pleasure an absolute blast Um, i hope you enjoyed it too and Best of luck with Space Perspective. And again, I hope in a few years' time I'll be saving up my money. I'll be I'll be on Neptune myself. Woo-hoo. Awesome. Thank you, Raphael. This Thank was you, great Raphael. fun. This was fun. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.